Well, it is a privilege to be here. Uh, this is my first time preaching as a guest, <laughs> which is, I don't know, kind of odd, because um, Harvest Plains is just so dear to my heart. And, but I don't feel like a guest. I feel like I, I, I've been here the whole time. I just got right back into the groove, so it's, it's really great. I guess it's a testimony to the reality of the body of Christ and how there's brothers and sisters everywhere, and you never really, I don't know, stop being brothers and sisters. So I'm really excited about the text that we're going to look at this morning. It's Psalm 24, so you can open up your Bibles to Psalm 24. And I, I chose the scripture reading that, that Cody uh, read from Revelation 21 as kind of uh, the goal of what we're going to be looking at today in Psalm 24. Really what we're going to be looking at is the way to the golden city that was described in Revelation 21. How do we get there? How do we get there? And I hope that that reading from Revelation 21 stirred your heart a little bit and gave you a, a bit of anticipation of arriving at the gates of the golden city, the new heavens and the new earth where God dwells, where we can dwell with our creator forever. And so let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 24 and read it, and then we can get into it. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Now, I'm going to start with a question that might not be obviously connected to our passage, but th this is the question. What is beauty? What is beauty? If you were to define beauty, I would say, hey, define beauty for me. How would you define beauty? What is it? And just think about that for a moment. I'm not going to give you long, but just kind of wrestle through that in your mind. You're like, how, how would I define it? I know, I know it when I see it, right? I know beauty when I see it. And so maybe an easier question is this. What is beautiful? And that question should create a flood of response. Well, many things are beautiful. A sunrise, a sunset, a mountainscape is beautiful. A calm lake in northern Minnesota that reflects the pine trees, that's beautiful. A stream going through the mountains is beautiful. The Grand Canyon is beautiful. A waterfall is beautiful. Human faces are beautiful. Diamonds and gold and, and certain metals are beautiful. The night sky when the stars are shining, that's beautiful. So we know beauty when we see it, but again, what is it? What is beauty? It's, it's oddly mysterious in a way. We know it really by our senses. It's a sense of pleasure and satisfaction when we are in the presence of, of beauty. 
In a sense, we know it through our feelings and our affections, our emotions. We see something and we have an emotional response and it satisfies us. We feel pleasure and we know this is beautiful. And really, when we're confronted with beauty, what we do is we gaze. We gaze. We want to look at it. And we just want to be in its presence. Whatever it is, the Grand Canyon, it doesn't matter. I just want to look at it. I want to gaze at the beautiful. Now, gazing really is worship. We worship what we gaze at. And we are designed to worship the beautiful in a way. So we could go back to our original question, what is beauty? It's a simple answer. It's God. God is beauty. God is beauty. And anything that we describe or label as beautiful is reflecting and displaying the one true beauty, God himself. All other beauty is a derivative beauty. All other beauty participates in the one true beauty who is God. God is beauty. So if anybody ever asks you the question again, what is beauty? You say, God is beauty. He is beauty. Now look at verse 6 with me. We're just going to quick jump right into the middle because I want you to see something. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. More than any place on the human body, the face is the place most associated with beauty, right? When we say someone is beautiful, usually we're referring to their face. They have a very beautiful face. We, we see beauty in a human face. And so we, when we think about the face of God, we could, we're really talking about like the place that is most associated with his glory and his majesty and his beauty. When you see the face of God, you are confronted with the totality of his beauty. Now, we can never fully uh, grasp that or comprehend that or uh, 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 behold that. But nonetheless, when we see the face of God, we're talking about having a real confrontation with the glory of God, the presence of God, and, and the beauty of God. And so, this text really is about seeing God. And again, we associate that with worship because when we're in the presence of beauty, we can't but help to worship and gaze at the beautiful. And so this morning, again, like I said, we're going to consider the path to beholding the face of God. And we call this, theologically speaking, we call this the beatific vision. Maybe that is a, a, a theological term that you have heard before, or maybe not. But really, what the beatific, beatific vision is, is it, it's our ultimate end. It's our ultimate goal. It's, it's why we were made. It's, the beatific vision is seeing God. And maybe you remember from our series um, on the Beatitudes, beatific, beatitudes, same kind of root word there, it's, it's happiness. This is the happy vision, meaning the beatific vision, seeing God's face is what ultimately satisfies us or makes us happy. We were made to see God's face and be satisfied in seeing God's face and being in his holy 
presence forever satisfied in his glory. Now, when we think about the psalm, going back to the psalm more specifically, there isn't really a concrete uh, historical example which this psalm is based upon, but there's, there's likely one historical example that, that's in mind. It's loosely affiliated with it, and it's from 2 Samuel 6 when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. If you remember uh, in 1 Samuel, the beginning of 1 Samuel, the Philistines steal the Ark and, and you know, the Philistines get cancer and all this stuff when they have the ark. Uh, and eventually, uh, they give it back to the Israelites, and it stays at this guy's house, basically, where he lives for 27 years. And then we jump forward to 2 Samuel, and now David is made king, and he wants to bring the ark of the covenant, which represents the presence of God. He wants to bring it back into his city, Jerusalem where it's supposed to be, where the presence of God is supposed to dwell. And so he's bringing this ark back in and maybe you remember the story they put it on this cart they weren't supposed to put it on a cart they were supposed to carry it with poles but they put it on a cart and it fell off and Uzzah put his hand out and God struck him dead and David's like was like actually angry at God in a way like what are you doing God I'm bringing this back where it's supposed to be and you strike Uzzah dead and so then he keeps it at another guy's place for a little bit longer and then God blesses him so David's like I got to get it back into Jerusalem so as he's bringing it back into Jerusalem he's dancing and there's music and there's there's, there's just this big celebration. It's this triumphal entry through the gates into God's city, Jerusalem. So that's what this psalm is loosely based off of. And so again, it's, it's the way to the presence of God. So this is what we're going to do this morning. We are going to consider the path to the presence of God and to the experience of true beauty. Uh, when we consider that, Psalm 24 sets forth three amazing truths that we will use as a guide this morning. So we're going to look at three truths from Psalm 24. We're going to use these truths as a guide to the presence of God and beholding true beauty. The first truth is this. God is the sovereign creator, possessor, and king of creation. First truth. God is the sovereign creator, possessor, and king of creation. Look at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. We have two words that have similar meanings, earth and world. The first one, earth, refers to the land, the trees, the natural things, matter, nature, uh, the ground, the water, the air, the trees, the rocks, the meadows, the grasses, the animals, the mountains, all of that. All of the earth, the fullness of it, is God's. And we could extrapolate that and, and say that the entirety of the universe is God's. Every galaxy, every star, every solar system, every planet, every black hole, everything in the universe is God's. It's God's. Every atom, every molecule, every electron, every neutron, every proton, everything is God's in this universe. The earth is is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then we get to the word world. The world is God's as well. The world refers to uh, the place, the places on the earth where humans dwell and inhabit. It's in reference to societies. And that's why we also see and those who dwell therein. So every place where people dwell and every single human being that dwells there is God's. We are all, every single one of us, God's possession. Every one of us. 
That's incredible. The fullness of humanity is his. Not one person is their own. No matter how poor or how powerful, no matter your position in society, you are owned by God. The greatest rulers, every pharaoh, every Roman emperor, every pope, every world leader, every president, all belong to God. All are God's. Every human being. The fullness of the earth and the world and everyone who dwells therein is indeed God's. Now, the question is, why? Why? Why are all things God's? Why is the air that you breathe into your lungs to keep you alive God's? Why is your body God's? Why is the universe God's? It's a great question. Well, David answers it. Look at verse 2. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. That's why. Which means, because he created it. That's what it means. Now, it's odd language, you know, on the seas, on the rivers. Like, well, why would you build anything on, on water? That doesn't make any sense. But it's in reference to creation because in many ways, creation is described as bringing order out of chaos. And so the seas and the rivers are, are a description of, of, of some type of chaos, disorder. And God brings order out of that chaos. And so if we look at the first two verses in our Bibles, Genesis 1 through 2, Chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth, the earth was without form and void. And, and those words are, are in reference to like chaotic matter, uh, untamed. It's wild. It needs to be domesticated. And darkness was over the face of the deep. The deep is, is kind of that, those deep, chaotic waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God brought order to it. He separated light from darkness. He created time. He separated the waters below from the waters above. Sea from land. He created an earth that could be inhabited by human beings, image bearers of God. So he brings order out of chaos. He, he creates the world out of nothing. Out of nothing. Ex nihilo, we say. Out of nothing. And then he orders it. That's why everything is his. Because he is the creator. He is the creator. He brings things that do not exist into existence. And then he continues to sovereignly uphold his creation. This is what is meant by establishes. He established it upon the rivers. He sustains it, his creation. He founds it and he continues to uphold it. Now, have you ever wondered this? I want you to think about this a little bit. I'm going to flesh this out a little bit more just because... Have you, have you ever wondered why things remain in existence? This is back to this idea of sustains and upholds. Why do things remain in existence? Why don't things just pop out of existence and cease existing? Have you ever thought about that? I'm going to do a little bit of a thought experiment with you. I want you to imagine a creature that doesn't exist. Let's actually use uh, an example from Greek mythology. Pegasus. You guys know what Pegasus is or a Pegasus? Watch the, the, the cartoon Hercules. Like, we know what Pegasus is. A winged horse, right? A winged horse does not exist in this universe. At least we don't think it does. But let's just assume a winged horse, Pegasus, does not exist. Yet... We understand the essence of Pegasus. We understand it. We have it in our mind that a Pegasus is a winged horse. And we can 
conceptualize this and we understand like, yeah, that's, that's possible. That could exist. God could create Pegasus if he wanted to. It's not a square circle or a married bachelor that makes sense. Those are contradictions. Those things could never exist. But a Pegasus could. And so what this means is that for a Pegasus to exist, the essence of it, which is a winged horse, would need to be united with existence. But right now, these things are separate. That's why they don't exist. So you exist, I exist, because some power out there united our essence as human beings with our existence as human beings. And when those two are united, we exist. So this means that we do not exist naturally. It's not of our nature to exist. We have to be given existence by someone whose nature is existence. Does that make sense? So when we speak of God, when we speak of God, He is existence. That is His very nature. Remember I said He is beauty. That's true too. That's of His nature as well. He is beauty. He is existence. He is truth. He is love. That's who He is naturally. We are not beings who exist naturally. And so the question why do we remain in existence? Because naturally we shouldn't be here. We should go back to nothing. The reason is because God upholds us and keeps us here. I say all that to bring it back to this point. Okay, we're here. We're sitting here right now, you and I. We are being upheld. Why? Why? It implies because God is actively doing this, it implies that there's a reason, right? There's a reason why he is keeping us here. There's a reason why he brought us into existence from nothing. There is a reason. There is indeed a reason. And the reason is to worship and glorify and praise him and to behold his beauty. That's why we exist, to worship God, to worship him to glorify him for who he is. It's an amazing reality. So that brings us to our second amazing truth. God made man as the pinnacle of his creation to stand in his holy presence beholding his glory in worship. God made man as the pinnacle of his creation to stand in his holy presence beholding his glory in worship why we're here and so Psalm 24 really is a psalm about worship it's about that the path to worship up to the up the hill to where the Lord dwells that's what this is about consider what Jesus says to the woman at the well in John 4 23 through 24 but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him that's why he made humanity He's seeking people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's why we exist. God made man in his image to worship him, to enjoy him, to be satisfied in him, to glorify him for who he is. And we, then, have a nature to worship. Consider it a bird, 
a bird. Its, its nature is to fly. Its nature is to build nests and lay eggs. So God outfits the bird with wings so that it can fulfill its nature to fly and soar in the skies. Even the very atoms and elements that make up our material universe have a nature that allows them to combine with other atoms and create molecules and, and substances and things. God designs them with a nature and outfits them to fulfill this nature. So if we were designed to worship God, God most certainly is going to give us a nature and outfit, outfit us with the, the ability to see Him and to worship Him and to know Him and to experience Him. And He's going to certainly give us the desires for this, right? And when we do this, when we worship Him, when we behold His glory, we are fulfilling our most fundamental purpose for existing. It's the most fundamental desire put in us to see God, to worship Him, and behold Him. And when we do this, when we actually worship, we flourish as human beings. We are doing what we were made to do. We thrive when we live according to our design. So when David asks in verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He presupposes and assumes that this is something you should want to do. Right? He assumes that ascending the hill of the Lord is a great honor, a great privilege, something that you must want to do. You, you want to ascend the hill. You want to. But the big question is, who, who, who is fit for this? What man is fit for this? Who could, who could possibly ascend God's hill? But before we get to the answer, let's just remember again what I've been emphasizing is that we were made for it. We were made to ascend the hill of the Lord. We were made to behold the glory of God, to see true beauty. Man was made to gaze upon God. He was made to be moved towards the majesty of the Creator. And so, if man does not ascend the hill of the Lord, and if man does not worship God, that means that he is fundamentally rejecting and contradicting his very nature as an image bearer. He's contradicting and rejecting his very reason for existence if he does not worship God. If he rejects this, he rejects his very design. And to fail to live according to your design and your purpose is to bring destruction and death upon your life. Have you ever considered this? Every single person who is in hell or who will be in hell Every single one of them has never once worshipped their creator. Hell is filled with people who have never once fulfilled or lived according to their design. That's a sobering reality. We were made to worship. Now you're probably thinking, maybe, maybe some of you, well, I thought our nature is against God, right? Aren't we, by nature, oriented away from him? You might be thinking of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
Again, isn't our nature then against God? Do we not by nature hate God? I thought we were oriented away from him, right? This is, this is what this text is saying. I thought our desires were towards the flesh and not towards beholding the glory of our maker. And yes, that's true because of the fall. Because of sin. Because of the curse of, this, of sin. Because Adam and Eve ate of the tree that they were commanded not to eat from. That is why our natures are now against God. But truly, the most fundamental reality about who we are is that we were made by nature to glorify God and to worship Him. And sin has corrupted it and given us a contrary nature. A nature that's actually alien to us. So again, we're unpacking this reality of how do we... What's this path back to beholding God? What's the path back? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord and see God? Now, again, we know this is true of us, that we were made to see God because that's how it was created in the beginning. Adam and Eve, made by God, lived in the garden and dwelled with God. God walked with them in the garden. They were with him. That's how we were originally designed. And sin corrupted it. So, because of the fall, David's question is much more pressing or concerning to us. It should be. Yes, David, yes. Who indeed, who indeed can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who? And David answers in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Him. And you're probably thinking, well, doesn't really help me out, does it? My hands aren't clean. My heart is not pure. I've been a liar. I've hated the truth. I lack integrity. I lack purity. But then maybe you remember from the Beatitude sermon, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There it is again. But my heart's not pure. What's true of us is articulated by Paul in Romans 3, 10 through 18, as he's stringing together a bunch of phrases from the Old Testament. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so there is this great dilemma that now exists. The man who can see God, who can ascend the hill of the Lord, must be pure. But we are not pure. We're the opposite of it. So sin creates this amazing problem, this insurmountable problem. And man now rejects his purpose of worshiping the creator. And what does he do instead? If we went back to Romans 1, Paul says that man now, instead of worshiping God, man exchanges the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He exchanges the truth about God for a lie and worships and serves the, create, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we still worship. That's the problem. Like we still worship. We're made for it. So instead of worshiping God, which we were designed to do, what do we do instead? We just stop 
and just worship the creation instead. So when you look at the Grand Canyon and you, you marvel at how amazing it is and how beautiful it is, you gaze at it, what you're supposed to do is use that to then as a channel to worship and gaze at the creator who made the Grand Canyon. And, but what you do instead is you stop at the Grand Canyon and you, and you stay in the valley. You stay in the shadow world in a sense. You just stop and get enamored with creatures. And that's a problem. We make idols of creation then. We exchange true beauty for just the derivative. So man is unfit for ascent. Think of it this way. Aerospace engineers, they design the space shuttle with heat shields on the exterior so that when the space shuttle comes back into Earth's atmosphere, it doesn't burn up because it's coming in so fast that the friction creates this tremendous heat and it will just fry up if there isn't some type of protective layer on the outside of it that, that protects the shuttle. And so man's purity is like that heat shield. Man's purity is like that heat shield. Without a pure heart and sinlessness, man will burn up in the presence of God. He will burn in the presence of God. He can't be there if he's sinful. He can't. He'll be destroyed. Consider Exodus 33, 18 through 23. This is one of my most favorite texts, and it's just packed with richness. Moses, you know, goes up on the Mount Horeb to get the law from God, and he's in the presence of God. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. He has all this anticipation. Like now, God, please show me your glory. Bring me to Revelation 21 now. Show me your glory. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. Shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand Away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Because if Moses saw God's face, he would die. He's not yet a glorified man. He's still in a sinful, fallen body. So God gives him just a little taste, just a glimmer. Covers, God puts his hand over him, puts him in a, in a, in a cave, in a cleft of a rock, and lets him just see his back. And, and man, when he went down from the mountain, if you remember the the narrative, like his face is shining and, and all the Israelites are freaked out about it. Now there's a similar story, 1 Kings 19 with the prophet Elijah. Elijah just got done with his showdown with the prophets of Baal on the mount and you know there was a bloodbath and now Jezebel's after him and he's running away and he goes up the same mountain that Moses went out, Mount Horeb and he hides himself in a cave and theologians likely think because of the province of God, that it's the same exact cave that God put Moses in. And Elijah wants to have an experience with the presence of God. Elijah is commanded to go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, before his presence. And then the Lord is said to pass by. 
and then comes a strong wind and an earthquake and a fire, but the Lord is not in any of these. But then comes the sound of a whisper, and the Lord is in the whisper. So what does Elijah do? He knows he covers his face because he can't see God and live. So he covers his face. He walks out to the edge of the cave, and he experiences the presence of the Lord. But again, it's veiled. His face is covered. God just puts his hand over Moses. Elijah puts his cloak around his face, covers it. And so these two things are deeply related. The same mountain, likely the same cave. Both Moses and Elijah have an experience with the presence of the Lord. And Moses goes as far as to like say, please God, show me your glory. I want it now. And then, not too long ago, maybe a month ago, Cody preaches from Matthew 17 about the transfiguration. And guess who shows up on the mountain? Moses and Elijah. So Jesus leads Peter, James, and John up the mount, and he's transfigured. And he's dazzling. His face is shining. And there appears Moses and Elijah. Yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, but there's something else there. Again, this is a taste of the beatific vision. Seeing God. And this time, Moses and Elijah see the glory of God, the thing they wanted to see so badly, they see it in the face of Christ. And John, Peter, and James get a taste of that as well. And then we see it in their letters later on. Peter talks about this experience of the transfiguration. It is seared into their minds because this is what we were made for, and they get a taste. So, all this to say... We were made to ascend the mount. We were made to see the glory of God. But again, we cannot see God and live. So what is the solution? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord and see God's face and not die? Well, consider verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So this man with a pure heart, clean hands, needed to be saved, right? He needed to receive righteousness. He needed to receive blessing. He didn't have it of himself. We don't have righteousness. We don't have pure hearts. We need to receive it. So the solution to the problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's justification. We need to be given by God himself an alien righteousness that's not of our own but was earned by Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh. So we receive this righteousness. We receive this purity. We receive these clean hands by the work of Christ. When we hear the gospel, we're told of our sin, told of the reality of Christ and his work, and when we repent and believe in him, we are given this righteousness as a gift through faith. We're given it, and now we can ascend the hill of the Lord. Now we have an imputed purity, an imputed righteousness, we have been given faith. We have been given the very Spirit of God. We can now ascend and worship. This brings us to our final point. Jesus Christ restores man's nature and leads us into the glory of the beatific vision on the hill of the Lord. He leads us. Remember what David was doing. He was leading the Israelites into Jerusalem, into the presence of the Lord. He was leading them. This time, it's the true king. Jesus himself leading God's people into his very presence. God is leading 
people into his own presence. It's an amazing reality. It's the reality of the incarnation. And what does our text say? Let's read the rest of the psalm. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Yahweh is the king. Who is Yahweh? Jesus is Yahweh. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. What an amazing reality. What an amazing reality. So, Jesus leads us up there. You know, it's interesting. David personifies these gates. These are just gates, and they are said to lift up their heads and rejoice in the coming of the king. They, these inanimate objects, are actually worship, are said to be worshiping the king. That's how amazing this is. And it reminds me of the triumphal en- uh, entry uh, of Christ into Jerusalem in Luke 19, 36 through 40. You remember, he gets this, this, this colt, this donkey, and he's riding into Jerusalem, picking up in verse 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and then he was drawing near already on the way down to the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. There we have a similar thing. The gates, these inanimate objects, these gates are lifting up their heads and rejoicing in the coming of the king. Jesus says, hey, if my disciples were not praising me, these very rocks would worship me because I must be worshipped. I am Yahweh. I am the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is God. He is beauty. He is existence. It's, 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 It's God in the flesh. He must be worshipped. So all these are strung together, the triumphal entry, our Psalm 24, 2 Samuel 6 with David coming in with the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus and his disciples going up on the Mount of Transfiguration. All these are woven together and connected. Isn't this just unbelievable? So God himself is the one who makes us fit see him he is the one himself who leads us up the hill and he is the one that we behold it's all God and this is really incredible David describes Jesus he describes Yahweh God as the warrior king he won for us this right to see him in battle he defeated death and Satan once and for all he defeated sin on the cross he is a warrior king So, I want to bring this to a point of application as we end. We who have been saved, who have been given this imputed righteousness by believing in Christ by faith, we can now worship, right? We're doing it here this morning. We're worshiping. We're truly worshiping God as we were designed to do. But we do not yet see God face to face. It's not yet Revelation 21, right? We still don't see Christ in all his glory. But the reality about gazing and the reality about worship is we become like what we worship and we become like what we gaze upon. 
So if we want to gaze upon idols, we're going to become like idols. Deaf, mute, dumb, sightless. So what we need to do is we need to gaze upon God. We need to gaze upon Christ in order to become like Christ, in order to eventually get to the point where we can see him face to face. So the question is, okay, we don't see Christ face to face yet, but we need to see him in order to become like him, in order to see him face to face. You see what I'm getting at? So how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we worship? That's kind of the question right now. How do we ascend the hill of the Lord right now as we're being sanctified before we're glorified? How do we do it? Well, I think the answer is in Luke 24. I'm going to read uh, part of this chapter for you just so you can see this because I think this is so important for us to understand. Jesus has been resurrected. He hasn't, he hasn't yet like revealed himself to his disciples. And this is on the road to Emmaus. Starting in verse 13, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking... And discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes, key into this, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named uh, Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in, in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of the, those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what did he do? He didn't say, hey, I'm Jesus. He said, let's open up our Bibles and start reading and seeing where the Old Testament scriptures talk about Jesus. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, listen to this, did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So, what does Jesus do? He keeps his identity covered until he reveals himself in the Bible. 
And they say our hearts were burning within us while he opened up the scriptures to us. So the point is this. How do we gaze upon Christ right now? We gaze upon Christ in the scriptures. That is the way. If we want to behold the glory of God right now so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ so that we can one day experience the beatific vision, we have to gaze upon the Lord right now in the Bible. That's the only way. We see the glory of God in Scripture. That is why at Harvest Plains, everything is about the Bible. We start with reading the Bible. We sing about the Bible. We read the Scriptures. We pray with Scripture. We preach from the Scripture. It's all Scripture because that is how we behold the glory of Christ right now in the Scriptures. So if you want to just neglect this, and act like you're worshiping God apart from this, you're not. You're not. If we want to experience Revelation 21, if we want to see Jesus face to face, we have to begin with beholding him first in the word that has been revealed to us. And that should encourage your hearts because you have it. Every single one of you here has access to a Bible. How amazing is that, that you can go home after this and continue to behold the glory of the King. You can continue to behold the face of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. And it brings us to, we'll end with this, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we, sh- we, will be, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. That is a great, great promise. And I would say, if there's anybody in here who does not yet know Christ... Well, you do not have the hope of this. You do not have the hope of the beatific vision. You do not have the hope to see Christ one day. Actually, you have the opposite. You, you, your destiny is hell apart from him. But you can have that. You can have that promise that one day you will see him as he is and you'll be able to be satisfied in his appearing. And the only way is to repent of your sin and turn to Christ now by faith. And for those of us who have, again, we have this great hope waiting for us to see him as he is. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful. You made us to worship you. We're satisfied when we worship you. We have this great problem of sin that separates us from you, but yet, Lord, you provided a way up the hill of the Lord into your holy presence. You provided the way that we may stand before you, satisfied in you, Lord. It's in Jesus Christ. So thank you, Lord, for the incarnation. Thank you for sending your son to take on human flesh to live the perfect life to suffer on the cross in our place to die to be resurrected and lord through this gospel and through this message we can have eternal life thank you for giving us your spirit thank you for the word of god that makes us like christ in your name we pray amen